Hello and welcome to the Events Podcast, where we help you build your events empire by building profitable events while having fun at the same time. So we've had a bit of a break over the summer, really since the start of the year, you know. I was really busy with my company Apps Events during the pandemic. Uh, I talked about that on the last call with James, you know, we, we transitioned to doing a lot of work for Google, running a lot of online events, doing different stuff. Um, so I was just really busy, but I've really missed doing the events podcast and we're still getting great views. We're actually a top 10% of all podcasts in the world still, which is amazing as it's a very niche thing. But I want to say a couple of things. Firstly, if you enjoy the podcast, please get in touch with me. Like uh, most people don't give me any feedback and, and getting feedback really encourages me to make more episodes. Just email me at dan at appsevents.com, D-A-N at appsevents.com. Even better, if you can give us a review, uh, anywhere you listen to the podcast, please stop right now in iTunes, Spotify, Pocket Cast, wherever you are, and please leave us a review if possible, five stars, of course, would be great. Back to the podcast. So we, we really focus on helping event entrepreneurs run amazing events, and that could be people who run events companies, but also just as many people, maybe more, are entrepreneurs who just run events as part of their business. You know, they might run events to promote something else, they might run meetups, they might run one big conference a year. This is the kind of people I want to help, you know, because I, I run events my myself so you know this podcast is kind of like therapy for me where I get help and assistance on how to run the event so please again leave some feedback uh, and secondly obviously there's a lot of costs associating with this podcast I've got two people who help me out with editing and graphics and everything else so if you're a sponsor possibly you're a software company who um, sells to the event industry then and you're interested in sponsoring this podcast like I said it's a top 10% podcast please get in touch uh, we'd love to talk to you, danapsevents.com, and it, it'd be great to talk. So thank you very much, uh, and now on to the interview. Hi, so welcome to the podcast. I'm talking to Liam Martin, who we spoke about three years ago, actually, on the podcast. Liam run or ran, I'm going to get catch up with what he's been up to. He did, he did, maybe still does run a conference called Running Remote in, in Bali, and uh, one of the founders of Time Doctor and Staff.com. Uh, and he's also written a book about uh, remote teams, which is something really interesting to me. So hi, Liam. Welcome, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're right. I have done all of those things and I currently am still doing them. And the book just came out last week, which I'm very excited about. People have been getting cool. it and kind of consuming it. Some of the most frustrating ways humanly possible, to be honest with you. But uh, it's, it's still been a really fun ride. Over the last week. Cool. Well, yeah, I, I heard your interview on Rob Walling's podcast, Startups for the Rest of Us. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I thought it'd be, it'd be good to chat again. You know, it's interesting. I mean, this podcast has kind of gone through some changes. I mean, it was, you know, originally we had a SaaS, which was an event system, which we sold. And honestly, I'm, I'm thinking of just in some ways making it more of a general business podcast because I'm just not that excited about talking about events anymore. Honestly, it's like half of the people I'm talking to now are just people doing different location independent businesses. And, and you know, I'm not obsessed with, you know, having the, the biggest podcast in the world. I just, just like doing stuff I enjoy. And, and just talking about events was just like, it started to get a bit boring. So I think I'm going to rebrand it. That's kind of my, what I'm going to do in the next month, I think. I think the fastest way to actually, ironically, grow your audience is to just do podcasts about things that you're truly passionate about. So exactly. I think you're exactly on the right track. Yeah, I mean, we, I've got another podcast called the International Schools Podcast. That's my business. I work with with international schools, and that's something I'm super interested in. And that, that's got really big, you know. We're top five percent podcast. Um, I've got a co-host now. We've got a sponsor, and it's interesting, you know. But that, again, I've like this podcast kind of had an agenda in the beginning. Now there's, I don't have anything 
to sell. So I'm just kind of doing it to talk to interesting people, you know, and just the events thing is just like, you know, I mean, I love running events. It's great, but there's only so much you can talk about how someone markets and run an event. It's effectively a, it's just hard work. You've just got to go out, you've got to hustle and, and, you, and you'll run an event, you know, and there's, there's not, I've spoken to so many people. I don't think there's that much secret sauce about, about it, you know? Mm, yeah. Well, I think probably the last couple of years, just in terms of that transition has been yep. quite interesting. We, so our event was going to run Austin, Texas, May of 2020. And everyone knows what happened in March of 2020. Yep. So it was a complete, <clears throat> it was a very quick shift. And when you're so close to that date, all of your accounts receivable have to come in, right? So you have to pay yep. for the venue, you have to pay for the food, you have to pay for all these things. You have to at least put deposits down. And we had $250,000 invested in that project and we had to cancel it all, which was super frustrating. But then we transitioned over to virtual and we, um, Johnny from Hopin, I don't know if you know Hopin.com. It's a, a uh, yeah, online events platform. Yeah. yeah. So our fund, Remote First Capital, that um, that uh, Andreas Klinger runs, who is a running remote alumnus, and he started it at the Running Remote Conference. His uh, one of his first investments was Hopin. So we used Hopin for our first event, and I, I mean the company is now worth. I don't know, eight or $9 billion. It's an incredibly successful business. But he admitted to me that uh, at that time, running remote was the biggest event that he had ever run on the system. Yeah, at that that's point. And he wasn't too sure whether or not it was going to all fall apart, <laughs> quite honestly, yeah. uh, while we were doing it. So it was a very interesting, exciting time for events around you know the first couple quarters after COVID. It was interesting. I mean, for us, it was it was crazy. I mean, I was running around 300 events a year prior to up until March wow. 2020. And that literally went to zero, completely went to zero. Um, and, you know, in, it, actually, if I look back now, I mean, there was some ups and downs, but now it's actually better. We've, we've kind of transitioned. Like we're more of a software and services company than an events company now. I mean, we've always been a Google for Education partner working with Google for Education. Um, and now we're doing a lot of reselling Google software. Uh, we're doing a lot of support contracts. So it's, it's recurring revenue stuff we've, we've got into now. We never really went down the virtual event route. We did a lot of virtual training, virtual boot camps and like Google certifications. We never went around the route of virtual conferences. We just went, for, instead of that, we just put tons of free events on YouTube, which was kind of difficult in the beginning but what it's meant is it's it's massively boosted our youtube channel so even though it's like it's still a niche channel you know but we're getting about like 60 to eighty thousand views a month now and and it's all super focused google people at schools you know so what that means is like that's now getting as a, a pipeline of customers so it was interesting we we didn't do the the remote events um I was a bit kind of evented out, you know, pretty quickly. And I, so I never did it. I think it's been successful for some people, not, not for others. And, and interestingly, now we're starting running a few events again. We're running a big one in Asia, a big one in, uh, in, in South Korea. It's going to be in November, one in Amsterdam. But I, I've got no desire to go back to running any, anything like I'd like to do a big European conference, a big Asian one, maybe a Middle East one, uh, and then a few training things. But, I, you know, for me, COVID – in the end, like after it's all said and done, it was a good thing. You know, we've, we've re-changed the business. At the time, it was, you know, like, shit, what's going to happen? You know, but um, I'm interested, like, did you, so did you do a virtual, you ran running remote as a virtual event then in, in, in COVID times? Yeah. So when we switched around March of 2020, we went virtual and we did, um, so our in-person event was about a thousand people 
in Bali. That was the previous yeah. one. And uh, a little under a thousand people actually. And so then when COVID hit, we were doing virtual, but we did about 22,000. And it was a complete change. 22,000 paid people? All free. So all free. Yeah, what, yeah, we, yeah. what we decided to do was we said, what's the best way that we could possibly help at this point? Let's make the event free and let's just get this information out to anyone because the yeah, first quarter- That's what we did with the YouTube, just all free, all free events. So we, we did like yeah. 50 of them. I, I just realized at that point, it was a very unique situation where no one had access to this information about remote work, but everyone wanted it. <clears throat> so the fastest way to be able to do that would be to be able to make a free event. And looking back on it now, that was actually a mistake because we've recognized that the new form of attendee that comes to a physical version of running remote when you train someone that something is free, they're really not interested in paying for it down the road. Sure. And so we had a lot of people that were very loyal to our virtual events that would go to every single one of them, but wasn't willing to pay for an in-person event. And it might be because they're just their own personal budget was, you know, they couldn't necessarily afford it. And that's not yeah. necessarily a bad thing that still kind of commits to the goals of what we wanted to put together, which was, allowing people to have access to this information. But we did believe that we would have more of those attendees that would transition from a freemium model to a paid model. And we recognized that uh, very few people were able to make that transition. And the people that ended up paying for a ticket were the people that paid for a ticket before we actually Are you running it, it in, in person? In yeah, I, I, I completely understand that. Are you running it in person in Bali this year then? The last one that we ran was about two months ago and it was in Montreal, Canada. And the next yep. one that we're going to be running is in Lisbon, Portugal, because we're oh, a remote okay. company and we're, we, we service remote founders. We have the, we have the conference in a different location every single year. Ah, so I thought it was always in Bali before COVID. Is that, was it, it... So we did twice in Bali um, just to kind of get our feet wet. <clears throat> so we did uh, Ubud, which is in the middle of the, sure, the yeah. island. Then we did the next one on the coast, which was actually right on the beach, which was a beautiful venue. The next year was going to be in Austin, Texas. The year after that, this just current year is Montreal, Canada. And then the one that we're doing next year in April is in Lisbon, Portugal. Got and it. then we have no idea where we're going next uh, after that. I think it really depends on whether or not we can turn a fantastic pro profit in Lisbon because Montreal, we lost about 50,000 um overall for that one and that was for a conference that does about half a million dollars we basically ran it at 10 percent. what was the um, reason you was that like you were paying too much for the for the venue i mean or, or marketing costs what was the reason or less people I think probably the biggest thing that i could kind of connect to that is we launched a little too early if we had launched three months later people would have been a lot less concerned about covid so yeah. as an example we had COVID protocols, which was everyone had to wear a mask because that was what the government mandate required yeah. of us at that point. And we had a lot of people that said, I'm not interested in coming to a conference. After I have to wear a mask. We had so, about 50 people that messaged us about that. So we don't know the exact cost that that cost us, but we know if 50 people are emailing us about that, that are interested in buying a thousand dollar ticket, at least 50 people didn't come because of that particular reason. Then when it was about a month before the actual conference started, the government here removed the mask mandate. And then we announced to everyone that 
you will no longer be required to wear a mask. You can if you want, it's totally up to you, but you don't have to wear one. And we had about 60 people that wanted refunds off of that because they didn't necessarily feel comfortable being at a conference with hundreds and hundreds of people that weren't wearing masks. Can't so it was kind of a, like, <laughs> you're, you're killed on both sides. And what yeah. we should have done actually is just commit to one single policy. But because when you look at a government mandate, no one, we couldn't stop anyone from taking off their mask. It would be a policy choice. It wouldn't necessarily be, it wouldn't be something that we could enforce legally. So we just realized that we were between a rock and a hard place and we just went with what the government mandate stated. Thing is, it's kind of silly in a way because like these, these government rules, because if you're at a conference, you're taking your mask off all the time, you're in the bathroom, you're eating and drinking, like it's like... It's just, it's, it's just, it's a, th- it's theater. The mask is just theater at this point. You know, if you're, you know, and people aren't wearing them properly. Most people in Canada and America don't even wear like <laughs> here. I live in Czech Republic uh, mostly. And here you had to wear like the proper respirator, the, the whatever it is. N95 yeah, and stuff. Mm-hmm. So there's, I mean, like ha- wearing a mask is just, it's, it's, it might make people feel better, but it really doesn't do anything. You know? just, just, yeah, but <laughs> it's that perception and a lot of people committed to that perception. So regardless of whatever, my I, I personally agree with you. However, yeah. the reality is that when you're servicing these customers, you know, you, you go with what the customers want. Um, and, I, and I don't want to necessarily change their minds. <laughs> I don't want to have yeah. a debate about masks with them. I just say, hey, yeah, okay, well, if you don't want to yeah, come, that, that's totally That's fine. why we didn't even, I mean, like literally the first one, we, we just did an event in Florida, an internal event for a, a school district. And um, that was the first event we've done. And like, I mean, I just don't, you know, I, I, I attended a couple of events last year where you had to wear a mask. We were, we were exhibiting like trade shows and like, I just hated it. You know, like it's so hard just to carry on conversations. People don't, you know, you don't normally, you don't recognize a lot of people that you know when you're wearing a mask and everything. I'm like, you know, whatever. Like if I, I, I could deal with it if I had to, but given a choice, I, I'd, I'd rather not, you know. I've, I, having been to events where everyone had to wear a mask, you know, I, I didn't enjoy it. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I don't think it's something that, if I had known what I had known beforehand, but because when you run a conference and you know this better than most, you have to commit about eight months beforehand. You have yeah. to say, here's my date, <laughs> here's my venue, you know, and I'm going to proceed. And then you just have to execute on that particular yeah. date. Yeah, and you, you can't change your date because hundreds of people just bought flights to be able to come to you know, your particular location, at least in my case. And so it was so important for us to be able to figure out that timing. And I think it was just something that we got wrong um, in terms yep. of understanding that timing. Again, I'm not a, I'm not a medical professional. So uh, I, I, it was very difficult for me to be able to kind of look at that timing. And I realized I was probably about 90 days off. If I had done it mid-summer to late summer, probably we would have had an extra three, 400 people that would have come to so conference. hard you know like what well, just predicting even now you know so i'm um i got, I got two young children and, and the whole family we're going out to asia next month we're going to stay about three and a half months i've got i'm attending a bunch of events in thailand and uh, singapore south korea we're running some stuff meeting customers um and i still don't know what's going to happen you know for example there's a big conference big education technology conference taking place in hong kong in december like right now hong kong still has quarantine you know so no one's going to go to it they think it's going to be lifted um you know, if there's a big surge while we're out in Asia, we might suddenly find ourselves in lockdown in one of these countries as well. You know, so it's like, for sure, it's because uh, you know, you know, it's there's a cycle of it gets worse in the winter and everything. So it's just, um, 
life's so unpredictable, you know, and I think now it seems not life seems completely normal. You know, I've been, I was just in Spain last week. I was just in America. Like, you know, apart from some travel disruption, life seemed pretty normal, but you know, I think it's going to, it's going to be a strange year or two. I think after I come this winter, I think could still be a bit of a return. I don't know what you think, how you think it's going to go this winter. I know I can, I can speak directly to the Canadian experience. They've stated the Canadian government has stated they do not want to go back to masks under any circumstances whatsoever. They said that that will literally be their absolute last resort. Now the Canadian government is famously very, very gun shy on, (laughs) on all of these activities. You know, the, the lockdown here was quite difficult in comparison to the United States as an example. So maybe they will actually be implementing those. And in December, I'll have to wear a mask again. But I think that, the current economic situation, the current global economic situation, we really can't afford to be able to go into another lockdown. I just don't think that we can afford to print another couple trillion dollars per country. Um, yeah. It doesn't make any economic sense. And so I think that we will have to grin and bear it effectively. And that might mean that there are more deaths that occur. Um, but actually, one of the I, I read a book recently, which was super interesting about the um, Spanish flu. And it was a bunch of geneticists that went back and took a look at the Spanish flu and recognized that the Spanish flu didn't disappear. It just mutated into a version that was not as severe. And yeah. the last vestiges of the Spanish flu left um, left the United States in 1974. And it started in 1918. Yeah, well, interesting, because like when you, I was reading something showing that actually the, if you look at the current pandemic it's actually followed a very similar pattern to, to what the spanish flu did mm-hmm. you know and i think if maybe if governments have been a bit more honest in the beginning saying look these things are cyclic they come and go in waves and then it mutates that wasn't you know that was never communicated to anyone it was just like you know we're gonna do we're gonna flatten the curve like in the uk where i'm from it was like you know three months we'll flatten the curve it'll be okay and then people will get their hopes up and then it was like look these things i i did a bit of reading pretty early and i'm like look these things come in waves you know winter it's usually worse that's just, it's going to come and go. And, and people, for some reason, seem to block that out or it wasn't communicated or, or something. Yeah. So I think for us, particularly people that are running events, we have to be mindful of that, which is I would probably stay away from, um, I would probably stay away from winter events because you're just going to have a higher chance that there is yeah. going to be more virus kind of floating around and people are going to be resistant towards that. I would probably say, doing an event where it is <clears throat> more than 30 degrees Celsius is probably the best kind of, when I think about, okay, if I'm going to run an event, it has to be in a country, in a city that is got an average temperature of more than 27 degrees Celsius, as yeah. an example, because that's when that virus is just not going to be able to grab onto people in the same way that it's currently happening right now. And Everyone's gotten COVID. Uh, there was a recent statistic because they, in Canada, they take blood work, um, or not blood work, they, they, they take blood. Um, the blood bank effectively was able to measure how many people had COVID. And uh, they recognized that 56% of the population had the Omicron variant. So they'd been infected with the Omicron variant, 56% of the population. And the Omicron yeah. variant's been up for less than a year, right? So everyone's going to get this to pretend that you're not going to is just not smart thinking. Um, you need to be able to prepare your body 
take your vaccine so that you can be as resistant as humanly possible when it does hit you. Yeah. But just accept that it's going to, and then get over it and get back to your real life. Interesting. Yeah. Good point about the um, winter and doing events. Cause yeah, I mean, as this is still at least this week, the events podcast, like I, I, another thing I would add very good points about, you know, hot weather and, and not winter. I, I would just look at, just to, to reduce the risk of your event being canceled, I would just look at different countries' responses to COVID. And, you know, like, because if you're going to run it in, like, for example, Canada, honestly, for me, would probably be one of the last places in the world I would run an event because I, yeah. I was just like, I could not believe the government's reaction. I, you know, I didn't I know that eight months before, by the way. What's that, sorry? I didn't know that eight months before the event ran. You know, it's like you have to make that commitment to say, no, but like, I was like, what is this? Like, is this North Korea? Like, what? Well, it's crazy, you know? And then, and, you know, maybe China. Obviously, I wouldn't run an event in China right now. Like, so I, I just, I would be very, like, you know, I'd, be, I'd look to places that had like a more relaxed atmosphere, which means your event's less likely to get canceled as well, you know? Well, that's why we've chosen Lisbon um, yeah, Lisbon, to a lesser yeah, degree. Exactly. Lisbon is a really great location. We haven't done Europe yet. And so we really see there's three major blocks to our attendee base. There's Southeast Asia, there is Europe, and then there's the Americas. And so ideally, long-term, I would love to be able to actually run three separate events so that people can be close to those particular locations. But yeah, Lisbon yeah. offers a really unique situation because from New York to Lisbon is a six hour flight. It's actually a five and a half hour flight direct. Yeah. And when I looked at New York, Chicago, Montreal, Toronto, Miami, um, Cancun and Los Angeles and San Francisco all have multiple dailies to Lisbon direct. So when I think about where I would wanna be able to run an international conference, it's basically how big is that airport and how many direct flights are going to that particular location. Another really great opportunity is uh, Cancun for international conferences because yeah. our attendees are very international, right? They're location independent business owners and entrepreneurs. So the more directs that you can get, Cancun is number one. And then the second best is um, is uh, Istanbul in yeah. Turkey. And Mexico oh, yeah. was very relaxed attitude to COVID. I have some friends who were there and they really didn't change anything in their lives. <laughs> you know, it's interesting yeah um yeah acapulco i guess as well there's quite a few events there i know as well i think that's on the other side of the other coast so isn't it? i haven't been to acapulco mm -hmm. yeah I, uh, I would definitely choose a location where you have low cost of living but a really good um airport that would yeah. probably be one of the at least for a conference like ours um that's what our location independent entrepreneurs and business owners are looking for, right? Like that's usually where they end up hanging out. And so yeah. for us, we realized perfect location, Lisbon. I went down there. I checked it out for about two weeks. Um, yeah, it's a great place. Not Web, is it Web Summit that runs there? What's the big huge Yeah, Web, Web Summit is, I think it's in Barcelona. Maybe it's in Lisbon. No, Web, Web, there is one of those. It was in events. Ireland before. It was in Dublin and they moved. Yeah. Um, it's the biggest tech conference in the world. Like we're talking... 50,000 attendees and they ran, they're running it in Lisbon because they recognize the infrastructure is there to be able to support that type of a conference. That's, that's really interesting. Cool. So look, remote teams, like this is a subject close to my heart. Um, I've, I've uh, been running my business for 12 years. It's all, it's been always completely remote. You know, we have team members in the U S and in Europe, Thailand, Philippines, Czech Republic. Uh, yeah. 
US and UK are kind of the biggest ones. But, um, you know, and it's, it's interesting because, I mean, I guess before we get into sort of tips for running the team, like what, um, what changes have you seen in like the remote work teams? I mean, I, you know, I was very early in the digital nomad scene and, you know, now I've got kids, we, you know, I'm tending to, we still travel a lot, you know, but we'll do longer trips away and, and, you know, obviously if they're not a full-time school yet, not right. six yet. So we, I've already had a change, but what, what's, what have you seen? Like what, what's your sort of travel schedule? What, what changes have you seen in the whole, um, you know, nomadic scene and how, and how has it been impacted by all, all these millions and millions of remote workers, suddenly, you know, who've suddenly had regular jobs who were allowed to, to work remotely? Sure. So I've coined this as the age of the rich, dumb nomad that is currently happening right now. So March of January, well, February of 2020, 4% of the U.S. workforce was working remotely. And by March, that was 45% of the U.S. workforce. So complete shift of everything that you can think about as, as it applies to work, right? That's yeah. the biggest transition in work since the Industrial Revolution, but the Industrial Revolution took 80 years and we did that in March. Current numbers today are still about 35% of the U.S. workforce is working remote or hybrid at this point. So those numbers have actually not really dropped off. If you look at Google had a fantastic data set because everyone has their smartphones, right? Everyone has an Android device and they were tracking how often you'd go on public transportation, how often you would go to parks, how often you would go to the grocery store, right? They'd be able to collect that data on an anonymous basis. They actually pulled the data set because people were terrified saying, what do you mean? You're, you're tracking where I'm going? Of course yeah. they are, come on. Like, yeah, of course, yeah. It's, like, that's a fantastic data set. And the one that has had the, um, the least reduction out of all of those categories has been workplace behavior. So we're not changing. Um, I would probably project that 25% of the US workforce will be working remotely within the next year. And I think that we're probably gonna go up to about 50% of the US workforce working remotely within the next five years. So that curve is now currently going right back up. So we, we kind of hit- But if you say level. like, if you say remote or hybrid, I mean, if someone's hybrid, they still have to live near the office though, don't they? Like if it's, if it's hybrid, they're not, they can't go and live. Exactly and right. So the majority are hybrid because I think it's actually a waiting room for the employer making a decision. Am I going to go back to the office completely or am I going to go remote? However, it looks to me based off the data that I'm seeing, the vast majority of workers are interested in remote work and they're not interested in, in office work. That's actually the number one reason due to the great resignation. Um, a lot of other kind of data sets will kind of pretend that it's not, but that is the number one reason is remote work. So you've also seen a huge change in the digital nomad scene during that time. So pre-COVID, there were probably about 5 million digital nomads traveling internationally. Uh, a lot of people will say that it was a much bigger than that, but it's not really. Um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of good data sets. McKinsey has a really good one. Just Google McKinsey digital nomadism and you'll be That's able to find it. I'll, I'll, I'll check it out. Um, so now we're probably floating around 50 million. And I would probably say we'd be at a quarter of a billion within the next five years. And the biggest group of people that are leaving are remote work. Um, well, sorry, uh, digital workers. So people that have a desk, right? But they don't actually have a desk anymore because they're now digital nomads. Yeah. And they are relatively high net worth individuals. So people that are making more than $100,000 per year. Yeah. As opposed to the previous generation of digital nomads that on average, I don't know if you, maybe this is an interesting pop quiz for you. 
What yeah. do you think the average income of a digital nomad was in 2019? 2019, that's interesting because, yeah, based on what you said, I would say it's low. I mean, you know, it's so difficult to say, though, because you meet such a variety of people. You meet a lot of people doing hustling, start, doing their startup. Maybe they're doing an agency or some web design and they're making, say, $20,000 a year. And then you meet a lot of people who are, who are making, you know, two, three, four hundred thousand, five hundred thousand a year. So I guess it's going to be lower than the number you said. So I'm going to guess like 30,000, 40,000, 15,300. Wow. Okay. But I guess, you know, but I mean, that's, that's the great thing about starting up a business. If you're living in Chiang Mai or Bali, you know, you, you can get by on that money. You know, you can rent a cheap apartment. Absolutely. You know. But that was probably a major barrier towards those costs remaining low. Yeah. Right. You can go to Chiang Mai and you can get a $400 a month condo yeah. with a pool and, you know, you can yeah. pay a hundred dollars in food and you can have someone that comes in and cleans your place for an extra $50 a yeah. month. And you're doing fantastic, right? You're living. You have a lifestyle of a rich person, basically. Yeah, six or seven hundred dollars per month. Yeah. That number will change and is currently changing very, very quickly. Uh, in Bali, which is where I spend a lot of my time as a digital nomad, the price of property has just in the last six months effectively doubled, um, which is just kind of pushing out a lot of the locals. So it's making it completely unaffordable for locals to be able to interact with those groups of people. Well, uh, I yeah, so it's interesting because we're, so we're, I'm just like, literally I was doing it before I started a call with you. So we're going to be, we're going to be in, in Thailand and, and, uh, South Korea, but we're going to be in Thailand for the first six weeks. I'm looking, I'm looking at booking an Airbnb, two bedrooms, you know, we've got two kids. Um, we, we booked an Airbnb in 19, in, uh, ni 2019 in Thailand. Um, similar time of the year, almost exactly the same time of year. I think we paid like uh, $1,500. And that's for like a nice two bedroom Airbnb, like, right. you know, they were a good, good place, nice development, good area and near where I want to be. Um, nothing under 3,500 for that same type of apartment right now, you know, like a nice two bedroom, but you could get a really crappy one, but like it's more than doubled in, in, in a three year period in, in Bangkok. Yeah. And, that's, so and that's, that's a country that's been de tourism has been decimated. You would think, you know, they'd be desperate to get people back, but the prices are crazy. Well, they're, they're recognizing that you just can't create more houses, you know, within yeah, six months. Yeah. And there's a huge influx of people. I have a lot of friends of mine that, um, and the policy right now is don't ask, don't tell, like the US military with regards to, to gay recruits. Uh, there are remote workers that work for companies that you would probably know yeah. that if I said who they were, you know, I would get in trouble, but um, they, they work in San Francisco, quote unquote, but they're not in San Francisco. Sure. They're in Medellin, they're in Cancun, they're in Tulum. Um, some of them are in Bali and they fly back once a month to be able to say, yes, I am qualified to, I am still living here, right? Because they require that one flight back per month to be able to make sure that they're tax compliant. So yeah, I wonder how big that is. I, mean, I, 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 I would guess it's very common people doing something like that. For anyone that's making over $200,000 per year, which is probably the average salary that I'm seeing of these people. Um, and these we're talking not just, I mean, we're talking one percenters, right? Yeah. We're talking about US one percenters. And so they're recognizing I'm now free to be able to do these things. And it's an incredibly exciting time because these people were paying $8,000 a month for a two bedroom apartment in San Francisco. And they're now paying $2,000 a month for a four bedroom villa in Bali with a maid. 
Right. So you, their life is completely changed. Do you think though, these, these, um, particularly these Americans, tech, you know, tech people earning like, like the example you gave 200,000 a year. Do you think though, given type of this, they may be shooting themselves in the foot because I wonder if a lot of American companies are now are going to realize what I realized a long time ago is like, why didn't I go to the Philippines and hire? Like, and if you, you know, there's plenty of, a lot of people now, I mean, I, I know, you know, Dan and Ian who run Dynamite Jobs, I don't know if you know them. Um, yep. They, um, I was just with them in, in Barcelona last week, actually. I mean, they're seeing a huge amount of people recruiting coders from Argentina and Brazil now. I mean, you know, people have been recruiting from Eastern Europe for quite a while. I mean, do you think that a lot of like, you know, what, what these people are not thinking is that maybe companies are going to stuff. I, I don't want the high maintenance Americans. I would rather have a hardworking, you know, person from Argentina. Yeah, no, I, and that's definitely happening. Uh, we're personally getting hammered by Meta almost weekly. Uh, we've lost four of our staff to Meta because yep. Meta no, did not have a remote work hiring policy pre-pandemic. Now they're stating 75% of their workforce will be working remotely within the next five years. So that's yep. their target, right? So they are effectively a remote first company at this yep. point. I and think so, you have to go in a couple of days a week there, don't you, right now? Something like that. There's some there's some part something happening like that. Yeah. So that's mostly due to tax compliance. So right. for anyone that's kind of confused as to why, why do you have to show up once a month? It's to be able to make sure that you're still tax compliant to say, I am a resident of California, which has 12.5% state tax for income tax, right? So they want to make sure that they are saying that that, that individual is still compliant. Right. And then um, outside of that, it's a don't ask, don't tell policy, right? So yeah. as long as they've qualified the requirements saying, hey, I'm working remotely and I am uh, still, but I am still a resident of the state of California, they don't really care. Right. But the situation right now is, is actually pretty intense. I think we're going to see a huge transition in terms of digital nomadism. Uh, I bought property during the pandemic. Uh, I bought a co-working space during the pandemic because, and, and completely like had to cash flow it for a year and a half. Uh, yeah. Because I realized the coming wave of all of these digital nomads that are going to absolutely love working remotely and are not going to want to go back and are making two hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars a year. Like the average engineer at Google uh, makes three hundred seventy-five thousand. Yeah. Right. So do they? I mean, uh, and right now, sixty-seven percent of engineers, computer engineers, currently work remotely today. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> why do they want to live in San Francisco when they could live in Medellin, as an example, and get a much better lifestyle? Sure. Um, they still live with their expat community. They're loving what they're doing, but they're not interacting. And, and I don't know the data enough to be able to really look at this in a deeper way. But I believe they will not interact with this, the digital nomad 2.0, which is there's kind of right. like three ways. Digital nomad 1.0 was engineers, very beginning, making $100,000 per year, very small community of people, mostly engineers saying, hey, we can work remotely, and we can be digital nomads, right? That was the first version. The second version was the agency, social media guys, SEO guys, um, starting my yeah. own hustle, starting my Shopify store. That was version 2.0. That was the $15,000 per year person that yeah. was like, I'm not making any money at all, but I'm happy. I don't have kids, yeah. you know, my lifestyle is pretty good. And on $15,000 a year, I can, I can survive. 
Yeah. Version 3.0 is going to be the $200,000 average salary person that says, I'm not staying in a hostel. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I make 200 grand a year. I'm going to build a massive villa um, somewhere in Bali. And that's what I'm going to do with my time. And those, I think we're entering that third stage now. We're effectively already in it. If you go down to Tulum right now, it's probably a really good microcosm of what's currently happening um, because COVID was relatively, uh, Tulum was relatively open during COVID. So a lot of those individuals went down there as their first location. And the cost of a home went from, uh, I have a friend of mine that ended up getting, he had a four bedroom villa that he bought for 150,000. That same villa is worth 1.5 million. That's right crazy, isn't it? So yeah. a complete change to everything that you want to think about as it applies to um, remote work and digital nomadism. And that's only going to go up. Uh, I think probably by next summer, you'll probably see, and, and actually uh, more specifically this winter, you'll probably yep. see the first real open season where people are saying, I don't want to be here in Canada as an example in minus 35 degree weather. I would rather go to uh, Tulum and live yep. a good life. Definitely. What, um, so uh, we haven't we haven't talked about your your book yet, but um, so we talked about a lot of very interesting stuff as well. Like, in terms of remote, like I mean, what um obviously you run. So what like can we just quit? But actually, before that, just can we just go over again your entrepreneurial stuff? Because I know timedoctor.com was what you were doing before, and, and I believe you're still that that's still your your business. And I think, has it grown a lot since um, since we last spoke? Uh, well, we spoke about three years ago, so yes, it has yeah. it has grown since then. Um, COVID was definitely quite successful for the entire remote technology stack. Yeah. So Time Doctor is a remote time tracking tool, specifically yeah. time tracking for remote yeah. workers. And so that grew along with um, Mural and Loom and project management systems, um, yeah. Zoom, you know, all these companies really kind of pushed out of the mean tracking curve. Uh, Shopify is another great example of a company that just completely exploded because everyone went online, I, I, effectively the digitization of the economy. Yeah. And so right now we're probably all returning to the mean. Uh, so I think sure. everyone's growth isn't as aggressive as it was back in 2020. Um, you know, I was doing first couple of weeks of, um, of COVID a big customer of mine would be two, three, 400 people as an example, and you can run your own calculations on that $10 per user per month type yeah. of contract. We're talking about a, a $50,000 to $100,000 a year contract, right? That would be a good, a big client for us. Um, and now we have governments that run on our technology, right? We have, we have massive corporations that run on our technology. And so one of the big reasons as to why I wrote the book was that during those first couple months, there were people that were coming to me saying, I have 500,000 workers in my organization. I have no idea how to be able to take them remote. How do I do it? And I'd say, well, I have no idea because we have 150 people here. <laughs> and yeah. they'd say, well, you're the first person that I've been able to talk to that actually has experience working remotely before the pandemic, right? It was a, there was a massive information gap that was occurring in this kind of vacuum space. So I realized that this book, Running Remote, was really the goal that I put together for myself saying, 
I want to be able to put together a package to show people the operating system of how to run remotely because the vast majority of people just recreated the office remote and that's yeah. not remote work. There's an actual methodology to it. There's a system to it. So I took all of these remote work pioneers, everyone that was remote before the pandemic and incredibly successful, eight, nine figure tech entrepreneurs and operators. And I interviewed them and I said, well, what do you all have in common? And they came to one single conclusion, which was asynchronous management, which is the yeah. ability to be able to manage people without directly interacting with them simultaneously. You're speaking no to me, so converted on this one. <laughs> yeah, well, no one really saw that methodology. I've, I've spoken at many different conferences over the last couple of months about asynchronous work. And I'd see about 90% of the audience has this kind of weird look on their face. Like, what do you yeah. mean? You're not going to actually talk to your people. It's not that we don't talk to them. We just, we communicate with them differently. We try to maximize asynchronous communication and minimize synchronous communication in order for the organization to be able to run a lot more efficiently. And so this is the methodology that a successful remote companies use. And there's been no book about that. Um, there's a whole bunch of books about whether or not you should use Slack or Zoom or Skype. And if those are the questions that you think will solve your problems, then you don't actually know what your real problem is. And this book specifically addresses that issue. Please not Slack. Slack is, Slack is the devil as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I know a lot of people love it, but I mean, I used it once for two months and I honestly had anxiety. It gave me anxiety. I'm like, this is a terrible system. All these constant, you know, just checking constant messages. Like, I, I, I don't know. Maybe you like it. I just, that's an interesting thing. I know Slack so, is, people uh, the love way that it. We use I it cannot is, stand it. I could never use it. Yeah, we remove all notifications. So standard Slack deployment is you no longer have a notification that pushes to your computer in any way. Yeah. Um, and the only notification that I will get is for a particular keyword, which is called Liam emergency. So if anyone yeah. puts in at Liam emergency, I'll get that push notification. Sure. That's a good idea. And that significantly reduces, I mean, we go from, I don't know, 500 pings a day to one ping a month. And it's yeah. the only ping that I should really actually pay attention to because it's an emergency and I need to be able to address it. And so you're right. It does create a lot of anxiety. I mean, Zoom fatigue is real. A lot of yeah. people that kind of have these perspectives of, hey, let's let's be on Zoom eight hours a day is, is mentally draining for the vast yeah. majority of the population. And so there is a better way of doing it. It's called asynchronous management. And that's what we teach in the book. Interesting. I mean, because how i am i don't think i'm the only person who's like this i just i hate meetings with pathologically i mean that i'm glad that i'm a business owner so i can in some i can some way set the culture but like i have one fixed meeting a week which is with my whole team and mm -hmm. honestly I, I shouldn't say this because i mean I, I love my team but i hate i dread that meeting i'm like oh it fills me with misery having and that's only one and i do have other meetings you know this is kind of a meeting we're on a call but i i tend to do you know things i enjoy but i just hate meetings so anything any this whole asynchronous movement anything that can reduce having to have a meeting, not, not, I think the main reason I don't like it is such a massive disruption in my day. If I'm talking to someone at three in the afternoon, then it's not just that hour that's gone. It's like the buildup. I, I can't get into something else I, that I would have done. You know, I can't block right. off three or four hours. And did you see a lot of people have similar feelings to me about, about meetings? Well, we have something called silent meetings that we talk about in the book, which is a standing meeting, let's say a weekly meeting, we will have issues that we put into our project management system. We use Asana. Yeah. And if we have less than three issues going into a meeting, we automatically cancel the meeting. 
So there's basically just a Zapier zap that just automatically cancels the meeting because That's great. there's not enough information in order for us to be able to have meaningful conversations about the particular issue. And that is incredibly powerful for us because it allows for, so number one, any meeting that doesn't have an agenda, do not attend. Yeah. That's one of my golden rules. Uh, any weekly meeting, if there are no issues around that weekly meeting or there are issues that don't necessarily concern me, do not attend. Um, there's a bunch of those kind of like if then statements that I have in my life and that I encourage all of our team members to be able to follow yeah. as well. Uh, another one is if you're in a meeting and you realize that the meeting is invaluable to you, you don't need to announce that you're leaving the meeting, just leave. Just right. leave the call. And some people find that quite jarring. But but, but right? what about if someone was about to, about to ask you a question or about to, about to give something to you, you know, and you've gone. And get your shit together and talk to me about it beforehand <laughs> and give me an agenda. Um, yeah, there, yeah, if I'm going to participate, let me know. But if I'm not going to participate, there's no real point to me being there. And sure. for these meetings, we usually record them. And then we'll be able to put that recording up so that anyone that isn't attending can actually watch it at 2x speed, which is way more efficient than yeah. um, what, you know, the, the, you've probably been in these meetings, maybe your weekly meeting is like this. Eight or nine people in a room, two people talking for 60 minutes and the other seven people talk for five minutes and then the meeting's over, right? That's yeah. just, you've wasted those other seven people's time. You could have had a two-person conversation, recorded it, pulled out the minutes, and then given that piece of information to everyone in the team. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I'm getting mo much more into I mean, we, we use we're Google, you know, so we use Meet instead of uh, instead of Zoom. But we, we're recording recording the meetings is so good. I mean, for example, you know, when we've got a demo, something technical with Google, just you record it, then you don't need to explain it again to someone else. You've just got that video. You just send them the link. And it's that's that's becoming much more common, I think. I mean, Loom was obviously a big, you know, people, a lot of people started using Loom as well, which really helped that. Yeah, I, I know for me, um, the ability to just communicate more effectively, the technology stack has gotten significantly better over the last, well, even the last three years, yeah. where you can use tools like Loom to effectively present. And they, they talk about how um, a picture is worth a thousand words. A Loom is worth like 10 million because you can yeah. actually bring people through the entire process from beginning to end on your computer and then you can send that piece of information to anyone and so yeah. for me these tools are only becoming easier to be able to implement but the basis of that entire conversation the the premise that you need to be able to recognize is that the more that you minimize synchronous interruptions throughout your organization's workday, the more deep work that you can focus on and yeah. the more deep work your organization can focus on, the faster your organization will move. And it's somewhat yeah. counterintuitive. Um, this happens, this is a top-down issue. So the people at the top are the ones that really have to implement this type of policy. Because if the boss is asking you for an emergency meeting, then it creates a problem where that kind of feeds down the entire chain. But if you can actually accomplish that, you're going to be way more productive. Your organization is going to move much, much faster. You just need to actually implement it. And that's, that's the point of this book is specifically focusing on that methodology and how to deploy it at scale. Interesting. You know, I actually, I love having people on different times. I know some people find it a hassle, but I actually prefer it because it minimizes the overlap. And it's actually like, for example, 
I love work with quite a few people in Asia. My business partner, actually, he's, he's in Thailand. So we, we have maybe, you know, three, four, five hours maximum. We overlap that like that restricts, like, I know, I know when it gets to like one in the afternoon, he's offline. He's not going to contact me again. So I, it, it just makes, if, if we're going to speak, if we have to sync, speak synchronously, it just reduces the window and, and it gets done quickly, you know? So I, I actually find the, the time zones help, you know, because it just reduces the amount of time you ever can talk to each other, you know? And so it makes you do more asynchronous uh, task, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is my, I actually have like a communication pyramid, which is in-person is better than video. Video is better than audio. Audio is better than instant messaging and instant messaging is better than email. But as you move down the chain, you're more asynchronous. So the bottom of your pyramid should really be email and project management. And then if you can, I actually would probably, I should put it in a between space, which is synchronous video like looms as an example then you should go into instant messaging. Um, then you should go into video uh, or audio video and then in person. Right. So that's the, the absolute tippy top of your pyramid. That's really, really good. What, um, I'm curious about your, like the nuts and bolts, like your company, what, what is your tech stack? I mean, you mentioned Asana, you mentioned, um, you mentioned using zoom, uh, and, yep. and Slack. What, 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 what a system can you walk through? Like what, what systems you use? And cause obviously you're very, you know, forward thinking in terms of remote work. What have you found good? And which, which do you like? And is there any you'd get rid of? Sure. Uh, well, I mean, there's always something that we would get rid of, to be honest yeah. with you. Um, Google Apps for Business. That's yeah. probably the absolute core of what we're, what we're using. Yeah. These project management systems like Asana, Trello, um, collaboration tools like Stormboard, Mural, those types of things. We use a tool called 1Password, which is our email password tool that provides ciphers for passwords as opposed to the direct password. So what you can do for that is you can issue a one password account to an employee. And then instead of changing all of your passwords, you can simply remove their access to one password because they never actually knew what the real passwords were in the first place. It's a cipher continuously for them. So they don't know what the real password is, which is super cost efficient. Uh, We do use Slack as an example, which is a great tool for that instant communication. But again, as long as you use it properly, um, we use stuff like Zoom, as you had said before, Time Doctor, obviously, for time tracking for a remote team. And then even something like uh, speed tests, right? So even when someone comes on to be able to join the company, they need to be able to run a speed test. And if you have less than five down and five up with a ping of below th- of above 30, you're not allowed to be able to um, work in the company. You have to go find better internet somewhere That's else. That's interesting. Why, why do you use a Zoom when you've got like Meet included in your uh, Google Workspace? Stability. So generally with Google Meet, there's two issues. Number one, Google Meet is actually a paid product in the United States, but then outside of the United States, it's a free product. So everyone uses it for free out of the US, but then inside of the US it's paid. And if you are logging in, from outside of a Google Meet event. Like if you're an American, you actually have to technically pay for the product. There is a kind of a workaround to be able to get to it, but that's incredibly frustrating. So we just use Zoom and it's a more stable product and we got a really good deal with them because we were one of the first companies to be yeah, able to you use should, you, should, you should look, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm a, I'm a Google fanboy, but you should, it has changed now. I mean, anyone with a Gmail account can join a, in fact, you can even now, you can even give a Meet link to anyone. They don't even need a Google account. And, and they can join. And actually, okay. the last, the last, and, and it's kind of this paid and free tiers, but, but like anyone can join the meet, literally. And I've noticed um, 
because I know a few of the technical team who've been working on this. And like the last three months, the quality's got really good. Uh, mm. I would say, I would say it's comparable. Um, we actually did one of the projects I actually, we did for Google was a website called comparemeet.com, which is for them to compare Zoom and Meet features. Yeah, I'm not trying to persuade you, but I, I think it's for a lot of people who are paying for, paying for Zoom, they could, they could stop the subscription and, and, and just, do, just do Meet nowadays. Yeah, I think the other part of this too is when you make an initial decision on a piece of technology like that, it's very, very difficult to be able to uproot it from your technology stack. So once you kind of, once you're in and you've got a couple hundred people using it to be able to pull that away from people, just even like, as an example, it's integrated inside of my Calendly, right? So automatically when someone sends me a, when I send them a Calendly link, it just automatically creates a Zoom room for us to be able to do it. All of those little integrations need to be changed around. And sometimes it's not so much about is the technology better but it has to be exponentially better in order for us to be able to go through the pain of switching. And I think that that is, that's a real great advantage for um, yeah. the companies that first enter the ring because they have yeah. that first mover advantage. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, for me, I mean, my, I have a similar philosophy only for me, like to do something outside of Google, like it has to be exponentially better. Like for example, you know, we didn't even even have a CRM for a long time. You know, now we use Pipedrive, which is amazing. But I just kept it on a spreadsheet. So it was just, it was doable, you know, Google sheet. And it just right. got too ridiculous, you know, but um, like Calendly, for example, Google now has um, appointment scheduling links you create yes. i've got one for a 20 minute one one for a 60 minute one so like i've got rid of calendly i've got rid of zoom just just with the the new you know google's they they, they really they realized at the start of a pandemic they were like hang on a minute who's who's this zoom and why are they suddenly taking over our market you know and <laughs> and, it, and it made them improve it it was just it just they were like a, a year too slow to really get meat up there you know now but now i think it's it's really getting good yeah i've seen the it's a really interesting because tope is is a friend of mine from calendly and I've always told him, dude, I, I feel like you're a feature. You're not an app, okay. right? And and it's a, it's an app that we've paid for, that I pay for. Yeah. But you're right. Uh, I did actually, my assistant showed me the Google Meet calendar tool yeah. and, uh, or sorry, the, the Google calendar like meeting tool. Yeah. And it looks great. So I'm going to test it out because if that can remove $7 per user per month, out of you know my bottom line um it's only a matter of time before we would make that particular switch so it's interesting i mean i think the entire technology remote technology stack is really heating up everyone is raised you know if you're anything connected to the remote tech stack you've raised 100 million dollars if you're someone that just started in the last couple years uh, as opposed to old school guys like me that um are still bootstrapped but the space is getting very very hot very quickly and it will only continue to do so as we see the continued transition of everyone going to a remote first mindset. Definitely. Liam, look, that's a really great, great way to finish it. Everyone check out the book running remote. I, I, I haven't, I have to admit, I haven't read it. I just, I listened to your, in, your interview on uh, startups for the rest of us of raw walling. I've just ordered it on Amazon before we spoke. So I'm going to let you know when I've, when I've had to go through it, but um, awesome. it looks really interesting and I'm glad you, um, speak to a lot of other people it's always good to get a bunch of people's perspective uh, and you know better than most i guess who who's doing well with the remote work and who isn't yeah the book is not actually just my interpretation of remote yeah. work it is all of these other experts i thought why would i what's the advantage that i have i've probably spoken to more remote work experts than anyone on planet earth so assembling yeah. those people putting them into a book is 
what this is about. And it just happened to result in understanding this methodology, this operating system on running remote work, which I'm calling asynchronous management. So that's what the book's about. That's good. Well, I'll put a link to, uh, to Amazon. Uh, or would you rather have a link to the website? Do people buy direct Amazon or you don't care? Doesn't matter. Any, yeah, any way yeah. that you can consume the book. I mean, everyone's getting it on audiobook right now, which is, uh, which doesn't count towards like Wall Street Journal rankings or anything like that, but that's totally yeah. fine. Any way that you want to consume it, just go for it. Sounds good. All the best, Lee, and thanks for talking today. Thank you.